And trivia, Shannon and I actually went to college together back at uh, UGA. Not a good year for our football team, but we're glad to have him here on staff at Good Shepherd, and so you're definitely in good hands. Um, so be sure to introduce him, yourself to him and help him. I know, I, another fun fact, that used to be my job, and then Chris had it, and now Shannon had it. So you had three generations of Good Shepherd small group adult education folk here, so um, Let's get started this week. We are talking about hot Bible sex, a.k.a. the Song of Songs. Now, back when I was on staff, when I used to um, be the, the head of the small groups and the Sunday morning life groups, I used to lead a Sunday morning class. We met every Sunday morning at 8.30. It was called the Genesis class, and they just called it that because they started reading Genesis one year, and then they said, well, we're going on to whatever book, but let's just keep the name Genesis. So I led that class for a few years, and it was great, because it was like we had people in their 20s, we had people in their 70s, 80s, everything in between. And one, uh, for probably about nine or ten weeks one year, this, this would have been about seven or eight years ago, um, I, we taught, I taught through the Song of Solomon in that class. We, we would study books at a time, so we'd go through the Gospel of John, we'd go through, you know, the Book of Acts, or Ecclesiastes, or, you know, just different books, and we'd kind of look at them all. Well, the reason we did it is kind of a challenge that I gave for myself, because I hate poetry. I'm not a poet. I did miserable at poetry in high school. It was awful. Reading Shakespeare was just fingernails on the chalkboard to me. I just didn't get it. Poetry was not my thing. And so I didn't have an appreciation for it. So I would read through the Bible, even through seminary. I would just read and study the books, and when I'd come to the Psalms, just kind of put those aside. When I'd come to the prophet sections that are poetic, I would just, my eyes would glaze over, and, you know, I just didn't, I didn't have a love for poetry. So I thought, what better way to make myself have to appreciate Hebrew poetry than to teach the most famous Hebrew poem of all time in a Sunday school class? And a lot of it was, you know, like people just, it was, it was, it was funny because we had some really, really manly guys in the class, you know, the rugged man's man's guys, and then we had some sensitive artistic souls in the class, and we had men, we had women, we had a cross-section. So I thought, you know, if the Bible really does have something to say, and if all Scripture is inspired and God breathed, then this is going to have to, it's going to be, you know, put up or shut up uh, if we're going to spend eight, nine, ten weeks in the Song of Solomon and have it be relevant for this diverse group that made up this Sunday school class. And so it turned out I had to do some study, had to, um, you know, just immerse myself in the song, and it was a really great experience. I came out of it loving the Song of Solomon and loving teaching the Song of Solomon especially because everything I had heard about the song growing up was in some way off. Like, I had heard growing up all kinds of stuff about the song. And, and there were all kinds of interpretations, and there were people that would teach it in one, uh, you know, they'd teach, it's telling one story, and other teacher, people would teach it as if it's telling a different story, and some people would teach it as, as if it's all about spirituality and the sublime and, and beauty and all of this stuff, and then other people would talk about, oh, we don't read that because it's kind of the, you know, it, it got snuck into the Bible uh, and didn't deserve to be there. And so studying the song and immersing myself in the song was a really great experience because, one, I, it gave me the chance to translate the whole song, to go you know, from Hebrew, just tr translate it all. And um, I've given you in your book, starting on page, 
I believe page 29, starting on page 29 in your workbook, in the appendix for this week's lesson, I gave you that translation. So you can have that to write on, to reference, to use. And what I did in this translation was I actually color-coded the, the sections based on who's speaking. So if it's purple, then that's the woman speaking. If it's blue, then that's the man speaking. If it's black, then that's either the woman, could be the man, or it could be a third party, uh, the chorus of the friends. And there are passages that are black because we don't know which voice is speaking. We don't know if it's the man speaking. We don't know if it's the woman speaking. And, the, and that's part of the song. Is how That's part of the reason why um, so many people have had trouble with it and, and not known what to do with it. I want to read a quote, and this is from your workbook. Uh, so if you, we're on page 19. And there's a great quote at the top by Richard Foster. This is from my favorite chapter of my favorite book about Christianity and sexuality. It's called Money, Sex, and Power, The Challenge of the Disciplined Life. If you can find it on Amazon, on eBay, uh, Alibris, any of these used book places, get it. I don't think it's in print anymore, but it's absolutely phenomenal. I love this quote by Foster. In the middle of his chapter on sex, he says, the problem with the topless bars and the pornographic literature of our day is not that they emphasize sexuality too much, but they do not emphasize it enough. They totally eliminate the relationship and restrain sexuality to the narrow confines of the genital. They have made sex trivial. I, I love that quote because it, it, it puts us on the right, it, it gets us started on the right path when we're looking at the song and when we're talking about sex in the Bible. We talked about last week how there's been a separation of church and sex. And churches don't want to talk about sex unless they're telling you what not to do. And it's because it's an embarrassing conversation to have if you're a pastor. It's embarrassing if you're a parent, if, if you've had the conversation with your child. It's very embarrassing a lot of times, uh, or it's just really funny, or it's really awkward, or it's uncomfortable for both parties involved. And, and so it's just sex is this thing that's, that we saw last week is at the center of who we are. You know, our sexuality is at the center of who we are. It's what it means to be male and female in the image of God. It's God's idea from the beginning. He created it. And yet it's, and, and, it's, and it's considered one of the most desirable things that humanity strives for. I mean, every, every, every striving can either be linked to a desire for money, sex, or power. And usually the power and the money is in order to get the sex. So there's this common theme throughout history that there's just this, it's, it's universal. But yet it's so hard to talk about. And one of the reasons is because it's hard to talk about it without either making it super spiritual and therefore unrelatable, or without making it crass and trivial and, 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 and jokingly. And so what we find in Scripture, though, is the perfect vehicle for talking about sex. It's a song. It's a song. It's an actual song, like, like with music and verses, lyrics. It's a song. In fact, the book is called uh, Shir Hashirim, The Song of Songs. And in Hebrew, when you say the blank of blank, that's like saying the blankest blank, right? So the song of songs is the songiest song. It's the greatest song. Of all the songs in the world, this is the one that's most important. And the rabbis felt this way. This is about 1000 AD, Rabbi Akiva. He said, all the ages are not worth the day on which the song of songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, meaning scripture, but the song of songs is the holy of holies. 
In other words, for, for Rabbi Akiva, who's, who's one of the most influential rabbis of all time in the history of Judaism, he says basically like the temple, and you have the courtyard, and you have the outer courts, and the inner courts, and then you have the tabernacle or the temple inside, and then in that, in the very center where God himself dwells, that's the holy of holies. Holy of holies, meaning the most holy part of the temple. Well, this is the song of songs, the greatest song of them all. Now, part of the challenge is that songs can be interpreted in different ways. Songs have multiple meanings. Poetry has multiple meanings. That's part of what frustrated me is as a logical thinker, you know, A equals A, and it can't equal not A. That's just how it is. That's just basic logic. But in poetry, A equals A, and it can also equal B and C, and sometimes E and F. It, it just, the rules kind of go out the window. And that's what made poetry so hard for me to appreciate. Well, that's part of what is, I mean, that's the case with all poetry. That's what separates writing as an art form from writing as a straight communication. That's, you know, if you pick up a book of Walt Whitman's poems, it's going to read differently than if you pick up the yellow pages, right? They're, they're written for a different purpose. I don't even know if there are yellow pages anymore, but that's where you, had to, you used to have to look up phone numbers and uh, on paper. It's very archaic. So, but songs, songs can have completely different meanings. And I've given you an example in your workbook, Puff the Magic Dragon. I grew up with Puff the Magic Dragon, the cartoon. Like, I watched the cartoon, and it was about a dragon and a little boy named Jackie Paper, and he went and Puff, and they were good friends, and, and then Jackie got old, and, and Puff didn't. And it was really sad. It's really like a depressingly sad song. But that was what Puff the Magic Dragon, to me, he was the green dragon with tiny little purple wings. and his No clue that the song's about weed. I had no idea that the song was originally about Puff the Magic Dragon, little Jackie Paper. Like, you put these things together, oh, huh. That's what they were talking about. So it's not about Lucy in the sky with diamonds as much as it's about LSD, right? Like, their songs can convey hidden meanings in the 60s and 70s. You know, they're, they're, they're full of it. Talbot could probably give you a catalog of those. He's the classic rock fan, and, and that's, his, that's his generation. Um, I, on the other hand, I'm, the, I'm one generation after. I, I, I grew up in the 80s with, you know, when everything became bubblegum pop and synthesized beats and all of that. Um, but the thing that remains is, is, is songs can have multiple meanings. In fact, good songs do have multiple meanings. They communicate something at a deep level through speaking or singing something at a surface level. Every good song does that, or, or most good songs do that at least. And then when you add in, in our day and age, you add in music videos, and then that's another layer of communication because now you're, you're putting imagery it may not have anything to do with the actual lyrics, with the lyrics which convey you're working on three different levels, so you can have songs that have all these different meanings. And as a result, people can read all kinds of things into it. They can listen to it. They can, they can oh, this is a really pretty song. I like this song. And then years later, you find out what it's about, and you're just like, wow, that's not at all what I thought this song was about. Well, the Song of Solomon is no different. It's like that. And people have thought that it's about all kinds of things. So some of the things they've talked about one example, they've said it's about Solomon and his favorite bride. His, his favorite bride. Like the, so this is why I asked the question at the beginning. What do you know about Solomon? Well, one of the things about Solomon, he puts Hugh Hefner to shame. He was so, so promiscuous. But he, 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 he 
justified it by marrying the people, marrying the women, then sleeping with them. But not all of them, because some he kept as concubines. Some he kept as just sex slaves. Solomon was the, if you can think of the word monogamy, and then think of the complete opposite in every way, shape, or form, then that's King Solomon. And the reason that this interpretation is, is even held is because the song's called the Song of Songs, which is by, for, or to Solomon. That's what it literally, that's the first line of the whole song. So a lot of people thought, oh, well, Solomon was wise, and it's part of the wisdom literature and scripture. So Solomon, he wrote all these proverbs. He wrote all this poetry. David was his father. David was a rock star. He would have gotten his musical talents from David, who wrote all these psalms. So it stands to reason that Solomon wrote the song. So whenever it's talking about the king, whenever it's talking about the man, it's Solomon. Whenever it's talking about the woman, it's who? He had a thousand wives when you count his concubines. So the people have said, well, it's about the one he loved the most. That's ridiculous, I think. That's, that's, th- th- there's nothing in the song that would place it as taking place within a harem of a thousand women. In fact, at the end of the song, there's a subtle jab, there's a subtle dig at Solomon's massive harem of wives. There's actually a critique of Solomon. And, and we'll talk about what that means in a little bit, what that could possibly be referring to. But, but some people say, no, it's about Solomon, and it's about his favorite bride, you know, from Egypt or something, whichever one he liked the most. Some say, no, it's actually about this farm girl, this, this girl that works the vineyards, and there's a shepherd boy, and they have this love affair, and, and they're actually separated by her being taken into Solomon's harem. So she's taken away by Solomon from her beloved, And so the song is her pining for her beloved and desiring him to come from the mountains and to come rescue her, to come to sneak into her chamber and so they can be together or to flee out into the wild places, out in the pastures where they can be together. So some have read it as there's not two characters, there's three characters in this and Solomon's the bad guy. Uh, Others have read it as it's actually God and his bride Israel. Jewish interpretations from the very beginning, have read it this way. It's actually about God. He's the man. He's the beloved. And his bride, the woman, is Israel, the nation. And then when, after the time of Jesus, Christians who were influenced by that heavily uh, said, well, no, it's, it's actually Jesus and his bride, the church. Because Scripture does speak about the church being the bride of Christ and him being the bridegroom who comes to, to receive the bride. It's filled with that imagery. So there is precedence. And in Israel's history, God spoke of Israel as his bride. We saw last week God talked about divorcing Israel and then taking her back, even though she was a, a cheating spouse. So there is precedent for understanding the, the concept of God and his people or Christ and his church as a marriage relationship. Uh, and then some have, have internalized that like they do, like we, we tend to do with every scripture, and we replace all the you's that are plural with a you that's singular, and we read it all as if it's me. So it's about God and his love for me, personally. They, they, they kind of strip the corporate element out of it. So this is how you get it. Usually when the song is worked into praise songs, worship songs of the past 20, 30 years, they'll sing, when they do sing passages that come from the songs, it's sung in a way that's like me and God and how much he loves me. I am my beloved's and he is mine. 
He brought me to his banqueting table. This is songs I sang in college. This is praise songs that were like, me, 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 and Jesus. So three different approaches. The reason that those even came up in the first place, though, is because of how blatantly sexual the song is. And the rabbis and the early Christian fathers who were heavily influenced by asceticism, they said, this can't be what it's about. It can't be about sex. It's too crass. It's too sensual. It's too hot to be just. It can't, it can't be in Scripture if it's just about sex. So there has to be a deeper meaning. And what we need to do is find that deeper meaning, break the code, then we can understand how to read it and interpret it correctly. So there'll be passages that talk about in the song where the, the woman says, you know, my beloved, my beloved is like a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. And it's, you know, myrrh you'd wear is kind of a perfume thing. And, and so the images of him laying his head on her chest, them laying together between her breasts. Well, some early church fathers would take interpretations like, well, the breasts represent the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the lover lying between them, his head between them, is like Jesus who, who spans the two testaments in the middle. That's a, I'm not making that up. That's a literal interpretation that someone actually suggested. And, and even John Wesley, founder of Methodism, he, who's a pretty good biblical expositor for a guy that traveled 250,000 miles on horseback preaching two or three times a day, he was a good expositor of Scripture. Even he, when he came to the Song of Solomon, said, it can't just be about sex. It that's, uh, that's just, too, it's too base. If it's just about, it's got to have a more spiritual meaning. I don't know what it is, but there's got to be something more there. It's kind of the route that he took in his notes. Other people, I've even heard somebody have talked about, excited about how the Song of Solomon was all really about the rapture. And so you can read into it. It's, it's about how when Jesus is going to come and he's going to take his church out of the world and there's going to be persecution and suffering and this and that. It's not about that. Um, I will confidently say it is not about the rapture. <laughs> I, will, I will stake my reputation on the fact that it is not about the rapture. Uh, but you can read into it all kinds of stuff if there's no... If the, let me put it this way. The less, less familiar you are with the culture and the language from which a poem or a work of art comes, the more you're able to read into it. If I don't know anything about, you know, pop culture in the 2000s, then I'm going to miss most of the references that pop music sings about. I'm going to miss all of the reference, whether it's, you know, modern hip-hop, whether it's Miley Cyrus, whether it's any of the current, you know, Beyonce, any of this stuff. If I don't know what apple-bottom jeans are and boots with fur on, I won't know what it's talking about. I barely know what that one's about, by the way. I'm, I think I do. Anyway, I won't get it. I'll be like most of you who are like, I don't even know what song that's coming from. You're not missing anything. It's, the, the, if I don't know the culture, if I don't know the language, if I don't know the imagery, then I can read in whatever I want. I can make it be about whatever I want. And that's what people do with the song. Um, and that's why it's been, it's been other people see all that. They see the different interpretations, and they go... This isn't for me. Let's just, can we just study John? You know, can we go to Ephesians? Let's go back to where we're comfortable in, our, 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 what we're used to Bible studies about. But the challenge, it's worth the challenge. The, the reward makes it worth it. So like we've talked about, the song is literally, what is it, what is it not? Well, literally, it's, it's 
the song, it's to, for, or by Solomon. That's, that's the first verse in it. Uh, the Song of Songs, which is to, by, or for Solomon. Now, if it is Solomon, if he was the one that wrote this, and this is where I, I land on this, is Solomon, I don't, I don't think it's impossible that he wrote it. If he wrote it, it would have been written around the time that Ecclesiastes was being written, the book that's right near it in this section. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon also doesn't say, I am Solomon writing this. It's, it's written in another character as the preacher or the teacher. So I don't think it's impossible that Solomon could have written the song. In fact, I think it could very well be possible for reasons that we'll talk about later that Solomon actually probably did write it, but it wasn't about him and his favorite bride. It was something a lot deeper and a lot more theologically significant, I believe. The thing that you have to keep in mind are genre considerations, considerations of genre. What is genre? That's the fancy word of saying type of writing. So the Bible, if you've ever been to Good Shepherd, you've heard it. The Bible is not a book, it's a library, yes. So within the library, there are different genres. You go to the Steel Creek Library, there's going to be a fiction section, there's going to be a biography section, there's going to be a cookbook section, there's going to be geography, there's going to be science, all of the different sections, different genres. You pick a book up from one section, you pick a book up from another section, and they probably won't read in similar styles because they're going to be different authors, they're going to be different types of writing. And that's the thing. This, this is, we talk about this in Bible for the rest of us, but I want to restate it here because it's so crucial, is when you, when you start talking about the Bible, you don't, you don't say, this is how I'm going to read the Bible, and then go to the text. You don't say, I'm going to read the Bible literally because I'm a good Christian, and then start reading the text literally. Or you don't say, I'm going to read the Bible spiritually because I'm a spiritual believer and I'm beyond that superstition, and so I'm going to look for the spiritual meanings. You don't do that because that's like going to pick up a phone book and say, I'm going to look for a good cooking recipe, and you open the phone book and try to get it. You're not going to get what you're looking for. So with the Bible, you know, do you, do you read it literally? Do you read it figuratively? Yes, depending on what you're reading, depending on which part of it you're reading. You read it according to the type of literature it is, according to the genre. So there are certain types of writings that have certain aspects or, or characteristics that if you don't know about them, you will get off base from the very beginning. The, my favorite one to teach on is Revelation. I have a whole DVD series about it. And from the get-go, the first thing that, to know in Revelation is it is a type of writing called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic was a type of writing, and it had certain rules of interpretation. There are certain symbols that have stock meaning across all of the different apocalypses that we know of. So there are things that we can say, oh, that's what this is referring to. Or we can say, well, that's definitely not what this is referring to, because we know the genre. We know the language. Well, the Song of Solomon is that way as well. It's, there, there are parallels in ancient Egyptian literature that have striking similarities to the Song of Solomon. Egyptian love poems, for instance, there's a type of love poem. It's called a wasp, W-A-S-F. And it is, it is basically these, these songs that are written with dialogue, like one person, will, what the woman will say apart, and then the man will say apart, and then maybe their friends will say apart, and there's these, these spoken roles. And they spend time praising the different aspects, the different, literally the different parts of the other's body. And they use metaphor and simile, and they use pastoral imagery, like, like pasture imagery, like, you know, the fields and the flowers and animals and architecture and all of this stuff. We know that there is this type of stuff in the ancient world. 
And we also know that during the time of Solomon, trade between Israel and Egypt was at an all-time high. In fact, Solomon married princesses from Egypt in order to solidify that. There was go-between. There was, there was uh, cultural exchange. So there's, it, it stands to reason that there would be similarity. Now, there are striking differences between the song and the Egyptian love poetry, but there are enough similarities to let us know that we're not reading something that was just made up whole cloth from nothing. We're reading something that was written in the style that was popular around 950 B.C. or so. You know, give or take a thousand years before Jesus. We, we get a window into that culture by looking at ancient Egyptian writings and ancient Egyptian love poetry and poetry from around the area. And so then we can go, oh, okay, all right. Now, I, I may not get the actual reference of this particular metaphor or simile. I may not know exactly what he means when he says, your neck is like the Tower of David. I, I don't exactly know what that means, but, but, but we, can, we can say what it probably means because we see these descriptions in other literature from the time. So it's not impossible, but we have to consider genre. Um, we have to consider things like in a song. It's a song. It's not a story. It's not a handbook. It's not a marriage seminar guide. It's none of those things. It's a song. It's meant to be sung. It's meant to be uh, read in, and heard as much as it is to be read and just reading it silently. In fact, reading it silently would have just been weird back in the day. It would have, it would have been sung. It's meant to be heard. And, and like songs that have refrains and verses uh, and bridges and choruses and all of those musical terms that I'm pretending I know what they mean, all, like any other song, it, it's not, it doesn't just follow straight chronological order. Songs can jump back and forth. You can be in one location, and then you can be in another location. You can sing about one image, and then in the same verse, sing it using a different image. There's, there's a fluidity to the imagery, to the words of the song, because it's a song. So we don't want to go to it. When we start reading it, we're reading through it, like, I don't know what's going on in here. Well, if you're looking for a story, then yeah, you're going to get lost because it does not tell one cohesive story. It doesn't, it doesn't give a linear plot. Now, some people have read it that way, and they've tried to teach it that way, and, and I've, I, I know there are some good attempts to present it that way, and I'm not knocking those teachers, but at the end of the day, they have to add a lot of stuff as background that's not in the text in order to get the storyline to fit which may or may not be true, but as it's given, it's a song. So we have to treat it as a song. We have to, we have to read it. You don't listen when you, when you buy a CD. <laughs> Nobody does that anymore. When you download a song, uh, when actually records are coming back around. I've been seeing a lot of records lately, so maybe it's all cyclical. Regardless of how you get your music, when you listen to an album, there's usually you know, 10, 12, 15 tracks on an album, and when you listen to a song you like, you tend to go back and listen to it again. You don't just listen to your favorite song once and then go, oh, I already listened to that. I'm good. Right? No, you listen to it all the time. You listen to it when you're driving to work. You listen to it when you're running. You listen to it when you're washing dishes. You listen to it when you're doing You just You have it on. It becomes part of your vocabulary. It becomes the backdrop of your daily life. It would be crazy if somebody says, what's your favorite song? And you're like, oh, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Oh, well, you know, what do you like about it? Well, I've only heard it once, right? Well, then you would say, is that really your favorite song? If you've only heard it once, is it really your favorite song? Um, no, if something's your favorite song, you listen to it a lot. You get to the point where you can sing it. You may not sing it well, 
but you can sing it. If you're a musician, you get to the point where you can play it, you try to emulate it, you, you take it in. Well, that's how, that's much closer to how all Scripture was intended to be read, but particularly the song. It's not a book you sit down and go through once and study and say, oh, I did that, what's next? It's a book that you meditate on, that you read constantly, that you listen to, that you put in an audio version that you can download for free online or any of the good ones from Amazon, Audible, any of those. There's so many audio, or you just record your own, just reading it, but you listen to it, you hear it, and it starts to, to permeate who you are. And that's a good way to do any Bible study, by the way, but particularly with the song. So let's look at some of this imagery here. On page 20, uh, the song, the reason that, that it gives people trouble is it's got a lot of, of often puzzling imagery. The imagery of the song is it, it, it's puzzling, to say the least. Now, the reason it's puzzling, most of us live within 20 miles of this place right here. And most of us were born within 500, 1,000 miles of here, give or take. Um, most of us are 21st century North Americans. This was written 1,000 years before Jesus. It was written into a society that was in so many ways completely different from everything we know. And yet, in so many other ways, dealt with the same issues which we'll see it later in the course. But the imagery in it, it, it shouldn't surprise us that it doesn't make sense to us. That's the first thing. This is what a good study Bible is for. It, it, it helps lead you along in, in these imagery that you may not understand. Or this is what commentaries do. They say, well, this, you know, give me some background. So I want to do some visual commentary on parts of the song. Some of these passages, like the first one, in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. He just called her a horse. Did you catch that? He just called her a female horse. Now, what is, what, how is that flattering? Which of you ladies would want to be said, hey, babe, you remind me of a horse? Well, one, that's bad poetry, so that just would be terrible anyway. But if, you, if, if we look back culturally, it'll start to make more sense. So some of the suggestions, we, we don't know all of them. There is some imagery that's, that's puzzling, and it can have multiple meanings. One of the suggested meanings for the mare among Pharaoh's chariots is that in ancient Near East battle, uh, chariots were almost invincible. I mean, chariots were like modern-day tanks, or, or not even tanks, like whatever the equivalent is that makes an army unbeatable. If you have chariots, you're going to win the battle, unless you fight another nation that has chariots. But only big nations really have chariot armies. And so... People had to get creative when they're fighting armies with chariots. One of the things that they would do is release a mare in heat among the horses of the other's chariots. Then the, the horses that were pulling the chariots see the mare. Uh, you know, I, I, there's battle that way. There's a really hot female horse that way. I'm going to go that way. And they would, you know, it was a way to get the chariots to veer. It was a way to, turn, to literally turn their heads so that, <laughs> that, 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 you know, and they could come and win the battle. But the underlying imagery suggestion of this is that a mare among Pharaoh's chariots is like, like you're a head turner. You're, you're, you, you stop things. Like, when, you don't just walk in a room. Like, when you walk in a room, people stare. 
or at least I stare. That's, that's along the lines of what may be going on. There, and there's other, some say, no, it's just because the chariot horses were decorated beautifully and all their jewels, you know, Pharaoh's horse, his, the mare among his chariots was like the most uh, beautiful of all the horses and well-combed mane, could be like her long combed hair. Well, all this stuff is possible, possible. These are the range of meanings. But what we do know is it is a way of praising the woman. Even if it doesn't resonate with us, it did in that culture. Another one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Now again, lady, you got goat hair. That's not very appealing. That's not a very romantic. You're not getting swept off your feet by that if you're a 21st century North American. But if you understand the imagery of it, this is, an example, this is a picture of a flock of goats. Uh, they're not streaming down Mount Gilead, but they're streaming down a hillside. And, and usually flocks can even be much, much bigger than this, especially royal flocks. So if you see a whole flock of goats streaming, and when you, I've, I've driven by Gilead in, in the Holy Land, and it's literally just these rolling hills. I mean, these rolling hills that come down to the Jordan River. And you can see, as far as you can see, it's just hills and hills and hills. So if you see a shepherd leading a flock down, streaming down those hills to get a drink in the Jordan River. Goats in the ancient Near East are dark. They're, they're dark colored. I mean, this is a good example. There are a few light ones in there, but for the most part, goats are dark. Goat hair is a dark thing, not a white like cartoon billy goats that we think of, but it's dark. So if you've got these thousands of dark goats streaming down a flowing mountainside, that will look like actually waving hair like hair blowing in the breeze, like a Pantene commercial, right? Like when they shake it and they do that thing, I can't do it, obviously. But that's, that's the image, right? This is pre-Pantene. This is pre-hot you know, hot oil treatment or whatever commercial it is. But it's that image, your hair, a flock of goats streaming down the mountain. So it starts to make sense. Oh, okay. He's praising her hair. And he's doing it in a way that's very image-focused, visually-focused, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from the wash. Each of them has a twin. Not one of them is missing. This is a great line. Um, again, sheep teeth, not the most romantic image until you start to realize what it's actually saying. On the left, there's a sheep. On the right, there's a sheep that's been shorn. What's the difference? It's wider. What else is the difference? It's clean. What else? Think of the texture. It's smooth. It's almost shiny, especially if it's coming up from the wash. When it's wet, it'll be shiny. It'll be glistening. It'll be white. This is before bleach, right? This is before Pantone colors. So the, thing, the imagery from nature one of the whitest and, and cleanest and shiniest things you could think of, a sheep, freshly shorn, coming up out of the wash. Each one has its twin. Not one of them is missing. Self-evident. <laughs> she has all her teeth. <laughs> right? We come to think of that as, oh, that's funny. But no, that's, that's a real thing. In the world without dentists, in a world without floss, in a world without toothpaste, it's, it's kind of a mark of pride if you've got all of your teeth, if not one of your sheep is missing. That's a, that's, that's a pra He's praising the beauty of her teeth. When you smile, you know, there's, there's some people that smile and they just have great teeth. You're like, wow, that's a great smile. 
You know, it's a multi-million dollar industry of teeth whitening and teeth straightening and, and you know, teeth replacing and, and caps and crowns and facades and all this stuff because teeth, it's a part of the body. It's, it's a desirable, you, you, you want someone with good teeth. And so that's, it's an aspirational image. It's a celebratory image. I tweeted this one today, if you follow me on Instagram. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of the gazelle, grazing among the lilies. All right, he's talking about her boobs. Let's just get the giggles out of the way. But he says, like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. And I used to think of him, I had like fawns, twins, gazelle, little deer. Little deer are awkward. Have you ever seen a deer try to walk, a baby deer? It's just awkward. It can't really stand, and it, it, it's, it's lanky. And it's, How in the world? What imi- how could that possibly? Why would you pick that to describe your, your, the woman of your dreams on her chest? And then, as some commentators point out, it's like, no, no, the two fawns grazing. When they graze, what do they do? They bend over. They round their backs. Their tails sometimes will stick up or, you know, they, they, you get these two humps, <laughs> these two fawns grazing. And so it starts to make sense. Oh, yeah, if you look at it from that perspective, that kind of makes sense. And they're, they, you know, brown and they're, they're, they're small and they're cute and you just want to squeeze them. And all. So you could get that. That's what the imagery is getting at. <laughs> that's, that's why it's written that way. There's so much... But you start to see, like, this is what it's conveying. This is, hmm, that's actually a praise. Both of them in the song talk about the other's eyes being like doves. We think of doves as white, but doves aren't white, at least most doves. And doves in the ancient Near East, aren't. they're dark. They're dark colored, and they're this kind of multicolored hue. Here's two doves. This is from brown to blue to dark, like black around the wings. It's, this, it's a dark image which makes sense because people in the Middle East, for most of them, their eyes are dark. And so it's, it's an image of this, you know, this darkness, this shininess, this, this healthiness. Um, she talks about his beard in one instance. She says his cheeks are like garden beds, so full of balsam trees yielding perfume. The type of tree that she's talking about is an example. It's, it's kind of similar to like what a lot of us use as Christmas trees. You know, the real the, the prickly, I don't know what they're called, in America, but the, the Christmas trees. And they, 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 they have like kind of prickly, kind of itchy, but, but yet they're, they smell good and they're soft. And they, they're Christmas trees. I don't know how to explain it any better. Than that. But that's, that's the imagery because unlike today, Hebrew men didn't shave their beards. In fact, they were, it, was, it was required in the law, in the Torah, in Leviticus chapter 19, you weren't to shave your beards or cut your sideburns. So Hebrew men had bushy beards. They would put oil in their beards to make it smell good. They would, they would take pride in their beards. They had big beards. They didn't look like this. They looked like that. They look like Joey, if you see. That, that's a Hebrew beard right there. It's just a solid. David Loy here, this is a beard. This is, this is what it was. So when you, when you, go, you know, go up to one of them at the break and just, no, don't do that. But you could say, yeah, making a comparison between their beards and, and the, these aromatic trees, well, that starts to make sense. You start to get the imagery. You start to understand. So the, uh, the question then is, okay, fine. Once you've gotten some of the imagery, and we'll look at some more later because it, it keeps getting a little racier. But once you've 
gotten it. Why is it so sexual? It's in our Bible. We give these to our third graders at, at confirmation week. You give them a nice leather-bound Bible, sign it by the pastor or the parents or both. A sweet little lady in the church usually gives it to them, pats them on the head. Well, you did it. You graduated. It's got this racy sex poem in it. Why? Why is it so sexual? Why does it have so much double entendre? All right? Double entendre is like wink, wink language. Like, oh, yeah, pomegranates, wink, wink. Like, why does it have this language? Right? Well, Here's what, I, there's a quote, and I've put, in, and, and let me just reiterate, throughout this course, in your workbook, we don't have time to cover all of the citations and the, and the passages that I've put, but I've tried to cull things from really good resources and, and put them in so that when you go through your workbook, you can actually read these on your own and, and get more background on what we don't have time to cover. But I do want to point out every now and then some of them, and this one on page 20 in your book, it's... Uh, by Allender and Longman. They wrote a book called God Loves Sex, and, and Allender is a, a clinical psychiatrist, psychologist, counselor, Christian counselor, and Trimper Longman is a fantastic Old Testament scholar, and they're like best friends from growing up, and so they teamed up together to write a book on sex and Christianity and spirituality, and particularly on the Song of Solomon. So it's called God Loves Sex, and it's, and it's, it's like a chapter alternates to be like a, a story of these, this small group, and they're talking about sex, and it just kind of traces each one's journey and how their thoughts each week after small group about what they read. And then the next chapter, Trimper will come in and actually give the, here's the commentary background of the song. So it's like half study of the song, half fiction reading counseling material. It's excellent, excellent book, and I quote from it a lot throughout this section. But this is... This quote is fantastic. He says, the language, second paragraph, the language of arousal in erotic beauty is breathtaking. It defies any form of ascetic piety or disembodied holiness. When we fail to be aroused by the physicality of our spouse, we've turned away from being captured by God's creation. Amazingly to some, the Bible is inviting us to fantasize and begin to form categories for sexual play. The Bible does not assume that we encounter sexual arousal or stories for the first time upon finding ourselves married. Our sexuality does not lie dormant and then suddenly arise on our wedding day. We're sexual beings from birth, and we're part of sexual narratives from our first day of life, if not before. And so what, he, what, what uh, Longman and Allender are bringing out in this is that the song, the reason that it's so sexual is because... God knows that we're created sexual, and he wants us to be sexual beings, and he wants us to have sexual fantasies. God's not against sexual fantasies. He thinks it's awesome. He thinks it's so awesome that he ensured that an entire book of the Bible would be in there right in the middle. Like, you just let your Bible fall open, and you're going to land near the song. And it's an entire book that is a series of sexual fantasies. That tells you something about God, and it tells you something about the church, and it tells you something about his people, and it tells you something about marriage, and the desire for sexuality, and, and the fulfillment of sexuality, and that it's important. And so why is it so sexual? Because we are sexual. Why is it in the Bible? Because we are sexual. God doesn't give us the most powerful, primal, biological, genetic, spiritual urge, and then not say anything about it. That'd be crazy. 
So instead, what does he do? He puts in his word one of the, the most beautiful celebrations of that aspect of who we are that's ever been written. So why wouldn't there be something in the Bible about sexuality and about the good, the, the, excuse me, the goodness of sexuality versus just here's what not to do? I mean, we'll look at the what not to do passages in, in the next couple of weeks, but before that, long before the what not to do, I want us to see the what to do, like the what it should be. The fact is, one, some people grow up their whole lives, whether they come from a strict, you know, kind of a fundamentalist or maybe a strict Catholic upbringing or, or just, just a, a cultural prudishness, and they, they grow up thinking that sex is naughty or dirty or it's something you don't talk about in polite company. And that's just common. I mean, that's common across the religious spectrum. But it's so antithetical to how we're created as people. And it's so wrong. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's almost a form of abuse for churches and for parents to, to take that mindset, especially when they're raising kids who are growing up sexually and becoming sexually aware long before they're going to get married, especially in our culture. I mean, even this, in, back in that day, you know, marriage would come not too long after puberty, so you only had maybe a couple of awkward years, and then you're married. In our day and age, you've got, like, I'm 37, so I've had many awkward years uh, until married. It's, it's, it's becoming lengthened out. So it's imperative, it's even more imperative that we grasp what the song is teaching and then be able to pass it on to our kids. One, I, I love my parents, and... and they, they are, they've done, you know, all parents make mistakes, and they kind of fumble through, and they do the best they can with the first kid, and then with the second kid, they kind of tweak things, and, you know, you eventually, maybe by the third, you get it right, um, but there's only two of us, so they're just stuck with that. When, when, when I was growing up, I remember as a kid, I was little. I, was, I, I would have had to have been in kindergarten, maybe pre-K, but I think I, think I was in kindergarten, and I, rem- I remember the road we were driving on, and I said something about we, oh, oh, yeah, so it was in Savannah. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. And there was, uh, my favorite store was Kmart because it had the best toy section ever when I was a five-year-old. Like, it was just wall of He-Man and Thundercats and everything that's awesome about being a kid of the 80s. So I loved going to the toy store. And I actually told my parents, I want to be, when I die, I want to be buried under the Kmart toy department. Literally told them that. Um, so I, would, I, I loved going to that Kmart. Well, right across, in the, in the same parking lot as that Kmart, this is about like 1983, 84, somewhere around then. There was, there was a, a, a building that was all brick, no windows, big ugly green roof around it, and flashing neon lights, go-go girls. This is in the 80s, so go-go girls, flashing. And I remember asking my parents, like when we were driving, what's go-go girls? You know, and they well, it's, you know, they kind of hinted around for a long time. And then I think when I was maybe about five or something, they said, they said, well, it's, you know, it's a place guys go to look at girls naked. And as a kid, I was like, ew, gross. Why would you, you know, the obvious kid reaction. And I said, oh, those are bad people, you know, or, or that's bad, something like that. And I remember my mom saying, kind of not stopping the car, but just kind of turning to me and saying, it's, it's not bad being naked. Being naked's a really great thing, and it's actually a really beautiful thing, but it's, it's for mother and father. It's for mom and dad. It's, it's to, you know, and, it, and just kind of went on. That little thing just burrowed its way into my five-year-old head, and it's been there ever since. It's 32 years later, and I still remember that. What it did was it instilled 
from that youngest of age that, oh, nakedness isn't bad. It's the context in which it's experienced that makes it right or wrong. And that's the message that we as a church, as Christians, can and should be instilling in, in our kids and among ourselves is that sex isn't bad. It's, it's the opposite of bad. It's the best. It's amazing. God loves it. But it, there's a, a purpose. It's to, it's to exist in a particular relationship. And so the song is giving that. It's, it's, it's teaching that. Um, some of the questions people ask about the song, you know, they, they, they jump to, um, you know, they'll say, well, okay, so this couple, are they even married? Because sometimes it talks about them longing for each other, and then sometimes it talks about their bed and them having sex, and, but then other times it's like they're not married, and then later there's a wedding later in the song, so what's going on here? Is it about just sex in general? Or, you know, and, and people jump to one or the other, because if you're a conservative Christian, or if you're an evangelical Christian, you have to kind of bend over to backwards to show that they're, no, 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 they are married, they are married. Well, in some of the scenes, in some of the sections of the song, they're not married, and it's ridiculous to think that they are married. You have to, you have to twist the text all up to make it, make them be, they're not married in parts of the song, but the key is that last part. They're not married in parts of the song, because this is not telling a story of an actual couple. It's not giving a narrative of a particular couple. It's a song that's celebrating that sexual longing and desire that exists even among couples, whether they aren't married yet. It's a, it, it depicts the raw emotions. It's, an, it's a song. It's not a narrative. It's not a handbook. It's not an allegory. It's a song. So when you start asking, well, are they married, it's, you've, you've kind of missed the point of it altogether is it's, it was sung in the context of marriages. It was sung in the context of celebration of the two coming together as one. In the ancient world, in Israel, you didn't... I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a good way to say it. There's, the separation of sex and marriage wasn't what it is today. In the, in the world of Israel, if you had sex, you were married. That was the act of marrying, was having sex. That's why in the laws of the Torah, if a man has sex with a virgin, seduces her, and then, then he has to pay the bride price to her family, and he has to give her the full rights of a wife because what they may have thought of as a little fling in the woods, the society and God in his said, no, you have become one flesh. And so this is your spouse. So that, that's the view of, this, of sexual intimacy in the ancient world. Now, there, now, that was the ideal, obviously. People always deviated from that. Prostitution is the oldest occupation in the world. You know, all that stuff. People have been getting it wrong from the beginning. But that was the ideal, was that sex was the thing that actually joined you together. So, an ancient Hebrew wedding, the, the groom would go and prepare a bridal chamber. It would be like a temporary house or something like that. And then... The groom uh, would send the groomsmen, and they would come, and they would get the bride, and they would take her to the chamber. And then the groom would come, being usually they were carried by their attendants, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen. They'd come, and the groom would come, and everybody else would come, and it would be a big banquet. It would be a seven-day sometimes, a seven-day feast, celebrating this 
coming together of these two families. But the thing that started it, the thing that kicked it off, was they'd come in the night, they'd bring them together, the couple would go have sex. They would consummate the marriage on the first night. Then came the reception. The wedding act was the sex act. And this is really gross. The parents would even keep the sheets. Yeah, right? Ugh. But the sheets, ideally, would be the proof of the daughter's virginity. Because they would see the blood on the sheets from the first time that she had had sex. Again, ideally and in theory, this is what was supposed to happen. Now, obviously, they deviated all the time. But, but that's the imagery of it. That's the, the thing that in, in the ancient Near East, the sexuality, again, what happens in the bedroom is private. But the relationship is very public. And so what the song is, is it kind of alternates between those. Sometimes they're alone, and they're speaking to one another. And then other times there's a chorus of friends that are almost like cheering them on. In fact, in one of the most climactic scenes, pun intended, when they come together and they actually have sex, like this chorus erupts from the friends that basically says, yes, go at it. You guys are awesome. Like that's what's going on in the song. There's a cheering. There's a community celebration of this. Without voyeurism, without the watching, without the lewdness and the staring and the trivialization, but a celebration of it it, it, as it's intended to be, of its goodness. So we have to respect the language, the poetic language of the song. It's powerful. It's evocative. It it brings out emotions. Um, It it communicates thought, but we don't want to press it to say more than it intends to say. It, it, it tells a story, sort of, but it's more about the feelings and the passion that are going on in that story than about the incidental details. Because the song, look at the bottom of page 21. The quote, again, from Allender and Longman. The man and the woman are intentionally not made specific characters so that those married couples who read it can identify with the characters and can be inspired to speak sensuous words to one another. Married couples benefit from reading this book together and placing themselves in the roles of the man and the woman. Just as the Lord's Prayer is a model of prayer to help us learn how to pray, so the song is a model of godly sensuality. Now, it's not a model of sex, There's no, well, I shouldn't say no, there's some, but there's not a lot of technique taught. It's not the Kama Sutra. It doesn't get into positions, but it's it's about sensuality. It does get into all of the, the emotional and the sensualness of sex because that's the thing that will be in every culture. You see, if, if, if the Bible was tried to present a Christian Karma Sutra, then that would just be at the whims of the society. Like, when, when certain body types are considered desirable and attractive, it'll be one way. But then, you know, in another culture or at another point in history, different body types, different things are considered attractive. It'll be completely different. Um, if, you, if you tie it in too closely to one culture, then it can't speak to all cultures. But at the same time, if it's completely divorced from any culture, then you get into that dualism thing we talked about last week where it becomes, oh, we just want to get the spiritual, the ideal, and the stuff that happens physically doesn't matter. But instead, so the song kind of walks that line where it's rooted in ancient Near East Hebrew culture, but at the same time, it's focused on the elements of the relationship that transcend that culture. 
So even the praises of beauty or handsomeness or, or the longings of sexuality in it are still transcultural once you've understood what they meant in the original culture. Then they can be extrapolated. So guys, you don't have to tell your wife she's got goat teeth or whatever you pull from it uh, because that's not an image that conveys that in our culture. You'd have to come up with a different one, like an iPhone or something. I don't know. Um, that's up to you. But we're going to take a break real quick. <clears throat> one thing that's important to note in the song is nowhere is procreation ever mentioned. Nowhere is having children ever discussed in the song. Now, this flies in the face of a lot of early church history that, that taught, like we saw last week, you know, sex is a tolerable evil, or if it's holy, it's only holy because it produces children. But that's not the song's original intent. The song doesn't get into the be fruitful and multiply thing that Genesis does. Because not every couple will have children, one thing. And also, because what it's doing is it's restoring the holiness of sex in its relational aspect, rather than in its mechanical, child-producing aspects. It's a voice that speaks against, in a patriarchal culture, which Israel was, it's the lone voice in Scripture that gives an unfiltered female perspective on sexuality and love and romance and marriage, and doesn't ever once talk about childbirth. Because in the ancient world, women were seen as bearers of children. That's the, that was the summation of all of your worth as a woman, how, how many children you bore. Israel was founded by a fight between sisters and their concubines of who could have more children with the guy whose name was Israel. And yet the song, in the middle of Israel's holy books, the most vivid celebration of sexuality in the entire Bible, in the entire world, not once mentions childbearing. I just think that's really fascinating. It's a voice that's speaking balance into a, the temptation to see sex, even seeing sex as good and holy, seeing it as, well, it's just it's, it's a means to an end, and the end is to bring children into the world. And the song says, oh, ho, pump the brakes for a minute. Sex is good in and of itself because it's good. Because it's two people coming together, both bearing the image of God, completing, complementing one another, and enjoying one another for nothing more than the sake of enjoying each other. It's just it feels good, and it should feel good, and it's supposed to feel good, and God wants it to feel good. And so you have the Song of Solomon right there in the middle of your Bible. So what uh, Alan or Lama, they say, sex is more than procreative, more than even relationship building. It's vastly more than mere sensuality and play. It's the one act that stands most opposed to the ravenous decay and destruction of death. In the end of the song, it'll talk about love being even stronger than death. And, um, and how powerful it is, and like surging waves, of, and just, it's, it's just getting, the whole song is getting wrapped up in, in what love, and in Hebrew, there's not a, the word that's used that's translated as love is the same word that's translated as love making, like it's the same, now there's a crasser Hebrew word for to have sex with, but then there's a word for to 
engage in making love. That's the word that's translated as just love in a lot of the versions of the Song of Solomon. The first first part of the song, you know, your your love is greater than wine. Well, it's your love making. It's it's talking about the act of love, not the nebulous concept of love, but the actual physicality of love. So let's take a break. Um, <clears throat> we talked a little bit about why is it in our Bible, and we're going to look a little more theologically into it, like what's it saying beyond just sex being awesome? What else is it saying? And then we're going to look at some more of the imagery because, one, I think it's kind of funny, and, two, it also helps you see just how unashamed the song is in celebrating the sex act. So grab some water, have a drink, uh, use the bathroom, do whatever you need to do, and in five minutes, what, where's the big hand? Is it Let us get started again. So, the song is a celebration of sexuality. It is an encouragement for godly sexual fantasy. Um, It is basically teaching you we're meant to teach God's people how to fantasize, how to be sexual, how to think about sex, how to, how to, to truly experience um, the, the one flesh union. It, it, all of that is part of it, couched in the vehicle of an ancient Near East love poem. But there's a deeper truth in it. And this is where the people that allegorized it, you know, they, they'd make up all kinds of stuff that, that was not in the text. But, but they were right in that there is a deeper uh, message in the text, a theological message. The song presents a longing look at what could have been or what should be. It's a, it's a longing for pre-fall intimacy in a post-fall world. Pre-fall intimacy in a post-fall world. What do I mean by that? Genesis chapter 3, we saw last week, that was the fall fall of man. That's where the serpent entered into, uh, got between the relationship, the man and the woman, the one flesh union. Um, the, the man did not work and take care of the garden and defend it and keep it like he should have because he allowed the serpent to come in right in between him and his wife. Uh, she disobeyed. She was deceived. He actually just went along with it. So he's even more guilty, which is why Paul talks about Adam being the one through whom sin came into the world, rather than Eve. That's a whole other lesson in and of itself. But the the one flesh union, the the relationship between the man and the woman was attacked in the garden. And as a result, when when God was was saying, this is the result of what's happened. This is, sin is entering into creation, and this is what's going to happen. He says to the woman, he says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, or he will master you, or he will um, lord over you. Your, your desire will be for your husband. Now, he, he, he pronounced on all three of the parties involved, so it's not like that's the only thing, but that was one of the things, one of the echoes of the fall that's reverberated throughout history is this sense of, um, uh, of, a, of a healthy longing 
on the part of women. Now, of course, you know, feminism is a, a reaction, overreaction in many cases to unhealthy forms of longing and, and all kinds of social issues and things. It's, it's very complex, so any discussion of gender roles is going to be necessarily somewhat simplistic, but throughout most of history, there's been this reoccurring trope in literature and in art of, of a woman longing for a husband and the husband, instead of returning that, actually ruling over or lording over. Not returning the desire or the longing, but returning the uh, seeing her as a commodity, seeing her as property, seeing her as a servant, seeing her as not human. Uh, all of those things, and, and it's manifested in different cultures throughout history in different ways, but there's, there's something there that goes all the way back to the fall. The unequalness of man and woman was not the original intent. That came after sin entered into the world. Man was created chronologically first, but woman was created on the equal status, and it was only after the fall that this subservience entered into the social dynamic. The song gives a nod to that. Uh, it, it looks back to it, and there's a couple of ways that we see it. One is, throughout the song, Eden imagery abounds. There's so much Eden imagery, garden imagery. This, this imagery that resonates. That's why we read last week. I wasn't just reading for the sake of it. Last week when we read Genesis 2, I didn't skip over those parts that talked about where Eden was and the rivers that divided and, the, and the, the, the precious stones and the fact that there was gold there and the trees and all of that stuff because that would be imagery that would reoccur later throughout the history of the Hebrew Bible and in particular in the song. I'm giving you an example at the bottom of 21 where he flat out says, you're a locked garden, my sister, my bride. You're an enclosed spring, a sealed up fountain. What was the first garden that was ever locked in creation? It was Eden. God kicked man out of the garden and barred the way with a, with a, with a cherubim, a flaming sword. I mean, it was, it was a no entry. So yet they're, they're, they're comparing their sexuality, their, their one flesh relationship is being depicted as kind of like an a, a Eden in miniature or, or a personalized Eden. And it goes on and lists all of the, you know, the, the fruits in it and pomegranates and henna and nard and saffron and calum and cinnamon, all of these spices, all these fragrances. It's the imagery is of this lush, fruitful garden. Verse, chapter 6, verse 2, at the top of page 22, my beloved has gone down to his garden to the flower beds of balsam spices, to graze in the gardens, to gather lilies. I am my beloved's. My beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And then chapter 7, verse 10. This is the, this is the climax of the song. Again, pun intended. This is the culmination of the song, I would suggest. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. I am my beloved's, Yet his desire is for me. Now, the reason that this should be uh, raise ring bells is because that word desire, his desire, that's that word teshuka in Hebrew. It's only, it's rarely used. I think there may be a couple of other instances, but the the only two that come to my mind, at least, that it's used is in this verse and in the account of the fall, when it said, "Your desire will be for your husband." but he will rule over you. But now here, what we see is at the climax of the song in 710, within this sexual relationship, there's a glimpse or, a, or, a, or a, 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 an experience 
of restoration of what went wrong in the garden. A hint. Not, not a fullness, not a full realization. There's not like marital sex undoes the fall. No. But within the bedroom, within the marriage bed, that is, that is a, a portrait or a shadow or an echo or, or a resonance of the ultimate uh, fulfilling when God comes and, and undoes everything that went wrong with the fall. It's a glimpse. It's a foretaste of putting right everything that went wrong. We see that in the song. It gives us a glimpse. The curse of Genesis 3 is now reversed in the song. In the song, the curse of Genesis 3, where the husband's desire is not for the woman, where she desires him, but he rules over her. In the song, that does no longer exist. In fact, the husband praises and exalts and pursues and chases after uh, the woman. And at the same time, she does the exact same thing. In fact, just numerically speaking, the woman pursues the man more in the song than vice versa. This this mutuality of the relationship that was lost in Eden is restored. Genesis 3.16, your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you in Song of Solomon 7.10. My beloveds, his desire is for me. That That is a huge theological, biblical theological statement that's made right in the middle of this song that's easily missed if we're just reading through it. We just think, oh, that's nice. He likes her. He desires her. It's not that normal desire. It's the specific desire that was fractured or broken or distorted at the fall in Genesis 3. So that that has massive implications. Um, But yet, the song also gives a sense of realism about sex in a fallen world. Because it is, it's a longing for or a depiction of pre-fall intimacy in a post-fall world, but it realizes that it takes place in and we exist in a post-fall world where there is closeness in the song juxtaposed with separation. So in chapters 3, verses 1 through 4, there's this, there's this closeness and then there's immediately this separation. Like just when you think they're together and then all of a sudden he's gone and they're, they're separated. And, and that, that resonates well with people who, in a fallen world with sexuality, in sex, you do get this. It's the closest you can possibly be. But then, then there will be times where immediately after, or even in, in the moment or at some point, because of the emotional issues or because of sin or because of insecurities or any kind of whatever echoes of the fall are still ringing out in, the, in creation, there will, sex will never be the thing that ultimately brings that that separation to an end. It'll, it can be a tool, it can be a, or not a tool, it can be a bridge to, to bringing people together, but it'll never be the completion of it. It'll never be the thing that truly unites, because that can't happen through human effort. That has to happen through grace and through God actually stepping into the human story and doing for humanity what humanity couldn't do for itself, which is restore fractured relationships. That only happens through the gospel. The vertical relationship between us and God and the horizontal relationship between us and one another. And the song preserves that. The song, it recognizes that. It, it, it realizes that there's going to be intimacy and there's going to be times of separation. There's going to be intimacy. There's going to be times of longing. Sometimes in the song, they're close and they're intimate and then immediately they're longing. Uh, she's, she's basically crying out because of the separation that they have. So, so both are there within the song. 
there's three themes in the song that, that, that shout out to us as readers that we want to cover. And this may be all we can get to tonight and we pick it up next week. But three themes. The first one, you cannot read the Song of Solomon and come away thinking that beauty is not important. You can't. You can't read the Song of Solomon and say, oh, well, all that really matters is how people are on the inside. That's dualism. That's, that's the platonic ideal. That's the idea that the physical world doesn't matter. The spiritual immaterial is all that matters. The song is filled. It, 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 the bulk of the song are these huge chunks of sections where they actually praise one another's physical attributes in detail, starting with the head and working down. It's, it's everywhere in it. Physical beauty, it's, to be, it's something to be praised. Now, don't get it twisted. Physical beauty is not the ultimate gift from God. It's not the most important aspect. Psalm, the Song of Solomon balances Solomon's other writing in Proverbs that beauty is fleeting and that it's character that determines one's true value and worth. Both of those are true, and the challenge that we have as Christians is to hold that balance is to celebrate the physicality and the beauty and the mutual attraction, not apologize for it. There's a subtle overreaction within churches to the excess and the vapidness of, of secular culture's hang-ups on beauty, right? Secular culture just just shoves beauty down your face, you know, airbrushed models on magazine covers, unattainable body image issues, all of that stuff. It's very real. It's very toxic. It's completely and utterly devoid of godliness in those aspects. However, subtly Christians have tended to swing to the other extreme to the point where it almost becomes embarrassing for a Christian to say, I really want to think my husband is hot. I really want to think my wife is absolutely gorgeous. It's almost become an embarrassment or an admission of, oh, well, that's just still the sin in you. That's still the carnal nature in you. Once you become really mature, then you'll see that it's just what's on the inside that matters. Not in the song. In the song, the physical beauty, the physicality is so important. And so what we have to do with that is we have to wrestle with it. We have to say, how do we live with integrity as people who both uphold the fact that beauty is a gift from God to be celebrated wherever it's found in whatever way God gives it? How do we hold that alongside the notion that beauty is fleeting and it is what's on the inside? It's the issues of character and integrity that really matter more. Both of those are true. How do we hold them in tension? That's your job as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as readers of Scripture, is to hold that tension and not err to one side or the other, not fall into the, well, you know, you can have every quality in the world, but if there's one little thing I don't like about you, no, I'm not, that's, you're, you're out of here. No, I'm, I'm going to wait for something better. You know, like that's an unhealthy worldly shallowness. But at the same time, you don't want to do the spiritual equivalent of that. You don't want to do the, well, I am repulsed by the thought of kissing you, but you love the Lord and you make me laugh, so let me just suck it up and let's get married. <laughs> That's not healthy either. <laughs> and I do know of people that have not been that blatant with it, but it's been that of like, 
you know, like, well, well, we don't really, the physical doesn't matter to us. And I just think, well, you're missing out. I mean, I'm not married, and I, I can't speak from experience, but I can speak from, according to Scripture, there should be within the marriage a celebration of the other's body and, and face <laughs> and legs and every other part you want to mention. There should be that on some level. Now, the freeing part, the beautiful aspect of this, is that there's no set standard for that. It's not determined by what the culture considers beautiful. It's going to be determined by the person and the connection that they have so that there will be someone who can look at the, their spouse. And, and even if everybody else in the world is like, why are you with that guy? Or, oh, she's really, that's who you're with? The, the two of them, because of their intimacy, because of their connection, because of all of the other stuff, then, then that's the thing that they actually praise in one another. You see this in the song. It's really cool. Um, so, again, Song of Songs serves as a balance to passages like Proverbs 31.30, 1 Peter 3.3, 3, where it says your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. That's true. That's absolutely true. But that's not what Peter or the proverb author is addressing. They're, they're, they're talking about that's not where your worth comes from. That's not where you get your validation from. The song is talking about within the relationship that's already established, within the loving relationship. Beauty should be celebrated. It should be, it should be there. Uh, but, so you don't, in the song, you don't see, again, there's no vague compliments uh, there's no fake flattery just to get the other person in bed. Um, the praise in the song of each other's beauty and attractiveness, it's specific, it's vivid, and it's authentic. They are genuinely enamored with each other, this couple in the song. They're genuinely enamored with each other. They literally celebrate each other's bodies and their mutual sexual fulfillment as gifts from God. They're thankful for beauty, and that's the right response. Because like any other attribute, like intelligence, like wit, like, like charm, like humor, like any of these, all of these personality traits that people have that are desirable, well, beauty is one of those. Not everybody's equally intelligent. That's just true. I mean, that's just a fact. Not everybody's given the same amount of charm. Not everybody's given the same amount of even temperament. Not everybody's given the same amount of wit or of quickness. Not everybody's given the same amount of beauty. That's just a brute fact in Scripture that, that Scripture's okay with. And, and, and that shouldn't be the standard that everybody strives for. But yet in our culture, because we are a visually obsessed, sexually obsessed culture, it's, it's just, you know, everything in, in, in advertising is aspirational. That's the code word that advertisers use. We want to make something aspirational. So we're not going to show someone brushing their teeth with bags under their eyes and their hair in curlers. We're going to show a supermodel all glammed up, brushing her teeth with no toothpaste. You ever notice you never see toothpaste in toothpaste commercials? They're always brushing their teeth and the brush is clean. It's aspirational. We want it to look beautiful. Well, Scripture just, that's not what you see in the song. That's, that's surface beauty. That's vapid beauty. What Scripture presents is the thing that that attempt at beauty is a pale comparison to. The kernel of truth that, that secular society grasps, that the song clarifies, is that, yeah, beauty is desirable. And physical satisfaction in one's spouse is a good thing. 
to be celebrated. And it should go both ways. There's a desire in the song to want to be attractive to the spouse. It's, it's mutuality. Paul will talk about this in Corinthians 7. He'll say the husband's body does not belong to him but to his wife, which was mind-blowing in first century Greco-Roman culture when women were property. Paul was, if you ever hear that Paul's anti-woman, read Paul and you'll see that that's not the case at all. He says, actually, no, the husband's wife is not his, the husband's body is not his own, it's for the wife's and the wife's for the husband's. That within the marriage union, within sex, that he says you're not to deprive one another of the, the gift of sex. You're not to, in other words, there's a, there's a, there's a giving rather than a receiving dynamic of sex. And that's what in the song, that's, there's, there's almost no taking in the song. It's, there's no, it's, it's receiving. The sex act is an act of giving and joyfully receiving and then delighting in giving to the other. Delighting in the joy and the physical pleasure of one's spouse. That's huge in a Christian theology of sex, especially in a culture that says sex is about what you can get, get, get. I mean, we even say in English phrasing, that's where, oh, you're going to get some tonight. Like, that's even become a phrase in English about sex, what you can get. But in the song, it's the complete opposite of that. Here's, here's a cool thing about it, is in the song, the woman will be self-conscious about her looks. She says in chapter 1, verse 5, I'm dark but lovely, O maidens of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Keter, like the tent curtains of Solomon, or, or it could be like the tent curtains of Salma, which is a desert tribe. Uh, either way, it's the vowels or what changes it. But either way, it's, it's about dark. Um, Do not stare at me because I'm dark, for the sun has burned my skin. This is at the beginning of the song, and she's kind of like de- sort of defending herself, but then there's this sense of like self-consciousness. Don't stare at me because I'm dark. And then she tries to explain why. Now, we live in a culture with tanning beds. Tanning beds would have been ridiculous to the ancient Near East. They would look at that and just think, what in the world are you doing? You want to get darker? Why in the world? Because in the ancient Near East, these are desert people. These are, these are agriculturalists. If you're dark, it's because you're outside. There's no SPF in ancient Israel. It's you got dark if you were outside. If you were outside, it's because you were working. If you were working, it's because you had to work, because you had to provide for yourself. You were a laborer. So the flip side is, and this is the way it is in a lot of cultures. When, when, when Talbot and I will go to India every year, and Chris has been there too, in India it's the same way now. The darker skin is seen as less desirable, not because of anything having to do with, with what we would think of as racial issues or slavery or any of that kind of stuff, ethnic purity or any of that. No, it's because you come from a lower class of people where you have to be out in the sun working, whereas the higher class, the richer, the more affluent, you can be inside. Your skin is fairer. It's lighter. It's not dark like the tents of Salma. This is an example of Bedouin tents made out of goat hair. So your skin doesn't look dark and leathery and tanned. Rather, it's delicate and nice and and white, all that stuff. So the woman in the song is saying that at the beginning, she's like insecure about her looks in one aspect. She's, She's not what that society would call beautiful. That's a key thing to grasp right at the outset. She's not the cover girl to the society. 
she has to actually defend herself in this passage about saying, well, I'm dark because I've been working out in the vineyards. I'm, the sun's burned my skin. You know, she talks about her brothers making her work in the vineyards, and so she couldn't take care of her own vineyard, which she's using as a metaphor for herself. She's not the glamour girl in, according to the standards of the day. But in the eyes of her beloved, she's absolute perfection. And that's the key with the song. She says, I'm a meadow flower. Uh, and some translations will say rose from Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Rose of Sharon, that's actually a literal flower. But that's not, the, that came way after the song was written. It's, the translation was, I'm, I'm a, a meadow flower uh, from Sharon, a lily of the valleys. This is that valley, a picture of it. This is basically covered with wildflowers. And she says, I'm just a lily of the valley. I'm just one of thousands who am I? I'm nothing special. Dark, burned from the sun, just a lily of the valley. And, e and in the poem, in the song, each time the man will build her back up. He'll say, you know, like, you're, you're like a rose among thorns. Like, she'll say that. I'm, a, I'm, just, I'm just another flower. And he'll say, no, you're like a flower among thorns, meaning you stand out. You have caught my eye. You have caught my heart. So physical beauty is praised. She praises him. He praises her. He builds her up. Um, she praises. The, the other thing is that the song teaches physical beauty and desirability is it's not just a guy thing. This is another insidious little myth that's crept into the Christian circles that guys are visual, girls are relational, women just want love and, and feelings, and men just want sex and a playmate. That's the stereotype that's that's been somehow seeped into our culture. But in the song, she's praising his body visually as much as he's praising hers. She goes on to describe in, in very vivid detail, this is at the top of page 23, I've uh, given you some examples from chapter 5, starting in verse 10, my beloved, dazzling and ruddy, he stands out in comparison to all other men. His head is like the most pure gold. His hair is curly, black like a raven. His eyes are like doves by streams of water, washed in milk, mounted with jewels. His cheeks are like a garden beds full of balsam trees yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with drops of myrrh. His arms are like rods of gold. He's got guns uh, set with chrysolite. His, and this verse gets translated in a lot of different ways in your Bibles. I don't know what Bible you're using, but if you have the NIV, it'll say something like his body or his abdomen or his something. Uh, the word literally can mean body or it, it's the word member. Some translations say his loins because it's just kind of like this area. <laughs> it can be a lot of different things. But look what she compares it to, his abdomen. I'll put it in quotes there is like polished ivory inlaid with sapphire. Polished ivory. What does polished ivory look like? <laughs> I wonder what part of his body she would be describing using this image. Hmm. We'll never figure that one out. No, of course she's going to talk about his, his member. <laughs> he talks about her garden, he, there's all kinds of references to the female genitalia in his praises. Why would there not be references to his genitalia in hers? 
That's, that's an important part of the sex act. And so she praises it. And, and she, I mean, she's working her way down. She's, she's describing it. The, the woman in the song is, is every bit as interested and enjoying the physicality, the sensuality of her husband as he is of her. It's, it's nothing that she's ashamed of. There's, there's no cultural norms that she's suppressing her desire. No, it is a full, almost a ravenous passion that she's voicing that would be unutterable or inutterable in that culture. You would not be able to celebrate stuff like this out in the open, out in public, just normal. It's done in the song. It's done in a, in a proper vehicle for celebration of such. You know, talking about his arms like rods of gold, you know, the, the in, in, talking about his legs like pillars and bronze pedestals and all of that's imagery from, from the temple, from Solomon's temple. And the gold everywhere, you know, his head is like pure gold. Well, the Holy of Holies was pure gold. Inside the Holy of Holies is where, is where God dwells, pure gold. So this imagery is being drawn from, from all of the finest, not just the physically finest, but also the spiritually finest things in Israel. His appearance is like Lebanon, choices at cedars. We think of Lebanon today, and most of us, if we know anything about Lebanon, just think, eh, it's somewhere in the Middle East, there's a bunch of dirt, and people are fighting, and it's kind of near Syria, where everything's just hell on earth, and it's just desert and dirt. No, Lebanon is a forest country. You can go skiing in Lebanon. It's mountain region, and it was renowned for its cedars. This is a cedar from Lebanon. These things are huge. They'd be like an oak in our continent. Would be like a cedar from Lebanon. So she's, pra- you know, she's praising him and likening him to this, these, these figures of majesty. So again, the 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 importance of physical beauty, and it's not limited to one sex or the other. The second point is that sex is our garden. It's our Eden. We talked about the imagery of, of sexuality using, or talked about it using the garden imagery. This is uh, what the, the area in Israel kind of looks like. Once you get outside of the, the Jerusalem and some of the hilly areas and the valleys up north and just kind of especially down into like near the Jordan and the Dead Sea, it's, it's kind of like this. And the most precious thing in that world, the most precious thing you could find would be a spring or an enclosed garden, an oasis. And that's what their relationship, their intimacy is described as. Chapter 4, verse 12, you are a locked garden, my sister, my bride. You're an enclosed spring, a sealed up fountain. Verse 15, you're a garden spring, a well of fresh water flowing down from Lebanon, like the Jordan flows down the mountains. In that world, the most precious thing you could have would be something like this an enclosed garden with a fountain where you could grow your crops, where you could uh, water your animals, where everything was taken care of, where you choice fruits, pomegranates. Here's visually, this is it's not, it's a no-brainer. It's like the ivory tusk. It's a no-brainer what he's talking about with pomegranates. Um, but it was a symbol of fertility, a symbol of, of, of lushness, of fruits being fruitful. That's what fruits do. Um, but when he says, you are a garden spring, a well of fresh water flowing down from Lebanon, this is in Gedi, in Israel. This is where David would go hide out. This is right in the middle of this. It looks like this everywhere, and then you go through one of those little valleys, one of those crevasses, and boom, that's what you see. A, 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 an oasis. Of, and this water is flowing down from Lebanon. It comes down the mountains of Lebanon into the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River, and ultimately into the Dead Sea. But 
this is what sexuality is likened to. Our sexuality, in the song, it's teaching us it's not a weapon. People use sex as a weapon. They use it to get what they want. They use it to get ahead in life. It's not a weapon. It's not a tool. In the song, at no point is sex used for leverage over the other person. Oh, I want so-and-so. I want him to take out the trash. All right, well, you know, if you do that, then maybe I'll let you tonight. There's none of that. It's not a manipulative thing. It's not a tool. It's not an ability. Nowhere in the song is sex presented as an ability that's, that somebody's just good at. You know, there's no such thing as a Don Juan in the Song of Songs. It's not this thing that you're, you're well, there's some people that are good at sex and some people aren't, and that's just how it is. It's not that. Ability has no place in the song because it's not about what you do to the other person. It's what you give to the other person and who you are to the other person. It's not a performance. It's real. It's authentic in the song. The sex is real. It's steamy. It's passionate. And it's real. They really are feeling that way. It's our garden. It's our Eden. It's meant to be the place where, we, where, where only that one other person is invited and where there's that, that oasis in the middle of a desert. That's what it's meant to be. It's our garden. So the question then is how are we treating our garden? How are, we treat, how are we tending our garden? If you're single, who are you letting into your garden? If you're single again, who are you letting into your garden? If you're married, who are you keeping out of your garden who should be able to enjoy the garden? That's what Paul would get at in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. The garden imagery is huge throughout the psalm because that was one of the most cherished things in that part of the world. Enclosed garden. Last point, and then we'll end. This is the one we'll end on tonight, is creation is good. Physical is good. Emotion is good. Longing is good. Fantasy is good. We'll talk more about that next week. But the, the notion of fantasizing about sex is a good thing. It's not like God says, don't think about it until you're married, then good luck. <laughs> Like, the song is meant to guide us into being sexual people because all of it's good. There's no dualism. The dualism is wrong. We live in a broken, sexually broken culture, in a fallen world. We're surrounded by it. All of our entertainment, all of our movies, our music, our cultural stuff. But you know what? That's exactly the situation that the Bible writers were in as well. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks when we look at Canaanite sexuality and Roman sexuality and Greek sexuality. This is tame compared to what they were surrounded by. So it speaks to us in the same condition. This is a quote, Allender and Longman. I'm going to read this one and then end with a side. This, they say, evil desires for us to be sexually used and then discarded. It also works to make us feel dirty, fouled, and ruined. God's gift of holiness is the promise that he will clothe us in his most beautiful righteousness so that we are dressed to be stunning and arrayed in his beauty. What God increases in us through the gift of holiness is the desire for our sexuality to be caught up in wonder and joy. We are meant to long for our experience of nakedness and pleasure, to be freed from shame and made holy good, and innocent. That's what God desires. To separate our sexuality from our spirituality is to rob both of meaning and passion. 
Church often makes sexuality unspiritual, just as the world substitutes a sexual encounter for a spiritual experience. Christians often fail by not talking about sex enough. Others fail when they trivialize sexuality through interactions that are crude and familiar. But rather, we're called to the balance, to hold that balance. The Bible doesn't reject fantasy. We'll talk about this next week. The Bible doesn't reject fantasy. It redeems it. And the song shows us what godly sexual fantasy looks like. We're out of time, so we'll pick it up next week. Hope to see you then. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for, one, for giving us the space to come together, to learn about your word, to let it form us. I pray that that we would all, whether we've read the song a dozen times or never read it before, I pray that we would incorporate it into uh, our lives, into our hearts, into our minds, that it would become one of our songs on our playlist, so to speak, Lord, that that we would learn through it and taking it in how you look at sex, how you look at sensuality, how you look at fantasy and longing and all of those things, Lord. Pray that before we ever get into uh, obsessing over or, or, or dwelling on what we shouldn't do sexually, Lord, I pray that you would give us a clear sight and a clearer vision of what we should do that we would see it how you see it. Lord, uh, thank you for those here tonight. Pray that you would give them a safe trip home and bring them back next week along with those who weren't able to make it. And as we continue to explore this mysterious, uh, often intimidating subject of, of sexuality and all that comes along with it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.